Nai mai, haere mai, ki tēnei hōtaka. Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Wallace Chapman here. Now, if you have a home, tune in just after four. If you're looking to buy a house, you too. House asking prices dropping 10k per month on average. Also on the panel, the government is touting the Healthy Homes Initiative with a report suggesting the programme reduces people's chance of going to hospital by nearly 20%. And as of this weekend, plastic takeaway packaging, plastic stemmed cotton buds, all prohibited. Your polystyrene takeaway for your lamb shawarma, what's going to replace it? And if you have lilies indoors, do not ever let your cat near it. That before five. And an article about an iconic shoe store closing in Wellington, it reminded me, someone once said to me, back in the day, shoe stores used to have x ray machines. Really? Can anyone tell me if they had their feet x-rayed for shoes? And another in our new feature, it's called the Song Whisperer. I give you the lyrics, you give me the song. So here they are. Tell me your thoughts and doubts. Sorry. Tell me your troubles and doubts. Giving everything inside and out. And love's strange, so real in the dark. Think of the tender things that we were working on. What song is it from? Text me 2101. You can email the panel at rnz.co.nz. Our panel today, Dr. Claire Robinson, Chief Executive of Toy Mai Workforce Development Council for the Creative, Cultural, Recreation and Tech Industries. Dr. Robinson, kia ora. Nice to have you on the panel. Kia ora, Wallace. And Mark North Thomas, the Chief Executive of the New Market Business Association. Mark, kia ora. Welcome to the programme. Now, uh, to this. A peregrine falcon and its clutch of four eggs atop a Melbourne skyscraper have captured the attention of a worldwide audience. An audience of tens of thousands of viewers have been captivated since cracks were spotted in one of the four eggs on a live stream last week. The falcons have been laying eggs at the top of the Melbourne high-rise at 367 Collins Street for more than 30 years, uh, but gained a worldwide following after a webcam was installed to stream their activities in 2016. So to discuss and to tell us all about it is Victorian Peregrine Project founder Victor Hurley. Hey, welcome to the program, Victor. Thank you very much. Good day. What's the latest? Have any chicks emerged over the weekend? Yes, indeed. So uh, late last week, uh, the first couple hatched, and then this morning at 8.30, the female was seen uh, eating some of the egg from the last chick after it had hatched. And uh, they do this to replace their calcium reserves because a lot of effort goes into the production of those eggs. Four eggs for an average peregrine female is about 25% of her body weight. Now, most of that yeah. is the fluids inside, but the shells take quite a lot out of them. So they are calcium depleted by the end of laying, and a lot of birds will do this. They'll eat uh, some of the eggshells to go towards replacing that lost calcium. Good heavens. It hasn't all been plain sailing, has it, for the female falcon after her mate was ousted, ousted rather, by a new male. That, co- that caused a few issues. It's, it was a very fascinating year this year. Um, peregrine falcons kill other birds for a living, right? So they know how to defend themselves. They're very territorial as a predator, and they mate for life. 
There's very little extra pair mating going on at all, maybe less than 2%. And um, the male from last year was still there. Uh, as far as we know, the four eggs are his. But about 10 days after incubation started, and this same male, he normally spends 55% of the daylight hours doing incubation duties. He Good really hands. steps up. And I was prior to this study, I had no idea that they, the males contributed so much. But then he's about 10 days in, his incubation efforts collapsed and went down to zero. And it was a few days after that, we noticed there was a second male hanging around. And then um, about 10 days later, we've yet to see the original male again. He's gone. The new male is very clueless. He's done no incubation duties whatsoever. <laughs> um, he's not particularly coordinated. He looks very clumsy walking around the eggs and the, the nestlings. Uh, the female generally won't even let him feed them. She'll take the food off him and feed them. Whereas last year, the experienced male, he gave the chicks their first feed after they'd all hatched. So uh, experience, you know, goes a long way. And as we often say, it's hard to find a good male. Incre- <laughs> incredible. <laughs> forget that, forget sure. Shortland Street, uh, uh, Victor. Shortland Street's kind of our version, I guess, neighbours, would you say? Uh, uh, I mean, this is uh, what, what a drama, Claire. And it's amazing what captures the world's attention. People have been really um, captivated by this. Yeah, well, uh, when I knew that that was going to be discussed today, I went on to the... Um, onto the cam and um, had a look. So I was intrigued to know that that was actually a male because he, he was kind of fluffing around on top of these very cute little fluffy grey um, things, which I assume must be the um, the hatchlings. But we've got, of yeah. course, we've got the same thing in the albatross camera down in Dunedin and um, yes. and we track our godwits. So we do have a, a fascination with tracking birds. Yeah. Um, stay there, uh, Victor. Mark is with us as well. Hey, Victor. So what's the normal sort of environment for these peregrine falcons to be in? Obviously, being in the top of a high-rise must be quite unusual. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, less than 10% of the sites that I am aware of, I've um, uh, either discovered or monitored about 260 nest sites across the state, and yeah, less than 10% of them are on some kind of a building. Normally, they're on a cliff face, on a rocky or sandy ledge, uh, and in Victoria, that accounts for about 60% of the sites, and then 30% are in trees, either tree hollows, very large ones, river red gum, or in stick nests of other birds. Now, peregrines are lousy tenants. They don't know how to build a nest or maintain it, but they know what one is, so they will move into some other bird's nest, and after a couple of years, they'll trash the place and move off to find another one. And that's usually in environments that are devoid of cliffs. So yeah. who, who's, fe- who's feeding this one? Because there looks like there to be a lot of bird feed on the on the ledge. Ah, uh, that's uh, fish tank gravel that I bought secondhand mm. uh, uh, and washed it and cleaned it and put those nests. The, the nest box is just a wooden tray with some drain holes mm. in it and then fish tank gravel provides a really nice base for them to dig a scrape and that's all they do for nesting a bit like a seabird that nests on the shore they just dig a scrape in the sand the difference is seabirds are 20 centimeters above high tide and peregrines like to be 200 meters above high tide 
Good mm. grief. So finally, Victor, um, is the camera going to stay? It's, uh, there's obviously an audience <laughs> for this yeah. and, and a long-time audience. We're talking about this, um, these four eggs, a falcon atop a Melbourne skyscraper. It captured the world attention. Is it going to stay? Um, we've got 40,000 members on the Facebook group, 367 Colin Falcon Watchers. I think they would have a word to say if it got removed. It will stay switched on until the last... Uh, nestling fledges and then there's just a lot of feathers blowing around in an empty nest so that'll happen sometime in early to mid-November these things will be flying by certainly the middle of November then after that we we shut up shop until next year Good on you, thank you That's Victor Hurley, uh, Victorian Peregrine Project founder quite an extraordinary story there Now by the way, we've had some fascinating fascinating texts coming through uh, about X-rays in shoe stores. We talk about that later on. Good heavens above. Um, All right, but it's time for I've Been Thinking. Um, Claire Robinson, take it away. So I have a new job, um, and... uh and I'm representing the um, the industry voice of um, the creative, cultural, recreation, technology sectors in the reform of vocational education. One of the sectors that we cover is the technology sector, where there's a huge skills gap, as I imagine most people know. But and but it's because not not enough people are seeing this as a career pathway. And I've been pondering why it's so difficult to attract people into the into the technology sector. Part of it, I think, is because people think that they have to be good at maths. Certain jobs have to be good at maths, but there's a lot of jobs there that are good for um, a whole lot of different skills. But I've been pondering whether we're telling ourselves the wrong story as a country because we still think of ourselves as being a, an agrarian nation, that the, the primary industries are the backbone of the economy. But honestly, in terms of what we can achieve with the technology sector, we need to be moving people out of thinking that way and thinking about future-focused industries. So it's exercising my brain a lot about how we can tell ourselves different stories so that more people see these careers as a really a valuable option. They are sustainable, they are weightless, they are they contribute to well being. You know, we should really be telling better stories nationally. And does that come from the government? Does it come from the top? It comes all over the place. I think that uh, the technology sector itself isn't particularly good at telling its own stories. It's just, you know, getting down to work. But some of it is the government and but and it's very difficult. You know, we drive around our highways and we see farms and we see sheep and cows and kiwi fruit and we we're familiar with it technology is a lot more invisible so it's really hard to sell this as being something that is really potentially creative and lucrative for a career. And yet it's interesting, isn't it, Claire, because when you start digging into it, there are some, including in the agrarian field, there's there's some extraordinary technology going on That's right, in this case. It's quite yeah. amazing. Yeah. Well, the thing about the interesting thing about primary industries is, of course, we can feed about 40 million people worldwide from our um, primary exports. But when you think about what the technology sector can do, we're talking about being able to reach billions and billions of people. So we actually need to think bigger in terms of how much we can affect worldwide through our our industry. Very good. Thank Mm. you, Claire. That's Claire Robinson there. Uh, Mark Knopf-Thomas, I've been thinking. 
Well, so we've just passed the um, the midway mark in the local body election period of voting, and uh, I think probably on this station I'm I'm no doubt preaching to the converted, but I've just been quite disheartened by how bad the voter turnout has been so far. I mean, looking at some of the stats as of the end of last week. Christchurch was sitting on about 10.9%, Auckland 8.8%, Wellington 4.9%, Topor 39 You know, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty dismal um, democratic turnout in terms of what voters are, are doing. And um, I was just wondering, maybe it's time we had a conversation uh, about voting being compulsory. And I know that the fiercely contested election in Brazil is being sort of... Uh, bashed around at the moment between Bolsonaro and Lula. And in Brazil, voting is compulsory. Even if um, if you were to make it compulsory, but there was an option to to have a vote of, you know, no confidence in, in whoever it was. But I just feel so dreadfully disillusioned with the democratic engagement. You sound sad. The, you sound sad about it. I am sad. Yeah. Whilst I'm very sad because local bodies can massively impact people's lives and, uh, you know, councils, transport or entities, etc. They have a major impact. Okay, but, so compulsory, um, compulsory. Can I just sneak in clear here? Because yeah. this is clear as, feel <laughs> as, as well. What do you make of that? Uh, what do you make of the assertion of compulsory? So Australia also has compulsory yeah. voting, and the evidence doesn't necessarily doesn't show that people make a necessarily better vote if, because they're having to do it. And actually, just like any survey, you can you can reduce the number of people who are going to vote or complete a survey. But they, or, but they vote though. Yeah, but they vote, but it doesn't necessarily make, change the outcome. So, mm. you know, reducing the number of people isn't necessarily going to have a, have a material impact on the outcome of the election because still the same kind of um, dynamics are at play. I think the, the more important thing is probably moving to online voting, which, you know, a lot of technology people, going back to my earlier technology comment, don't like because they – they're always looking for risk and they can see that there are reasons why voting papers might be damaged. But actually, um, online voting is the future. Online is everything at the moment. And so you, we really well, need to move there. We're talking about online regarding scams very, very soon, yeah. Claire. But um, OK, so you, what, what, how would you come back on that, Mark? Um, is there any examples globally, though, where online voting is proven to be no, robust I'm talking enough? About, I'm talking be- about compulsory Oh, yeah, no, I think compulsory. I still think I'd rather have a voter turnout something more than 3.9%. It will get get up to the mid-30s, probably up to 40% nationwide still. People are very late at voting in this country. Claire Robinson and Mark Noth Thomas with me this afternoon. Stay with us. We're here to five.